You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Four five of the Field Day Anthology. To my right here again beside me is Stephen Ray. Um, Stephen probably needs no introduction, but um, you really have to say some words about him. Stephen's provided me with some of the most memorable theater performances that I think I would when I go back through things I've seen on stage from Double Cross in 1986 to more recently Cypress Avenue. I pick out the greatest hits, the moments in theater that stick with me. Stephen is often in them. He's also been, I think, notable as being somebody who has brought out the best in other artists, whether it's Brian Friel, Sam Shepard, or in film with Neil Jordan, and was really instrumental in the transformation of an Irish film industry in the 1980s through the 1990s. Um, so it's a great honor to be on stage here with him. Um, to my left here is Professor Claire Wills. Um, Claire has taught in uh, University of Essex, Queen Mary uh, University of London, was the Leonard L. Milberg Chair in Princeton, and is currently the King Edward VII Chair of English Literature in Cambridge. Um, she started out really writing Northern Ireland poetry, books like Improprieties, great book on Paul Muldoon, but the book that in some ways pivots, and I think really makes the case through her career of what we're looking at today, that culture, history, and politics are intertwined, was that neutral island in, uh, in 2007, which is what Ireland during World War II. And that transition from writing about literature to writing about culture in a wider sense, I think really embodies some of what we're looking at here today. Finally, um, to, uh, to my left, uh, at the end of the table here is, is Dr. Connor McCarthy from Maynooth University. Um, Connor is, is, is his interest is really in intellectuals in Ireland, in intellectual history and cultural history in Ireland. Um, his book, I'm sure many of you know, Modernization, Crisis Culture in Ireland, 1969 to 1992, um, is, is, is really a forensic analysis of, of, of cultural history in Ireland. He also has written the Cambridge Companion to Edward Said, which is also germane to our conversation here today. Um, so we have a panel here. Um, we're going to talk about Field Day, and we're going to talk about Field Day as a cultural intervention. So I'm going to start perhaps maybe with Stephen, um, since you were there at the outset. Um, it starts as a theatre company, yourself and Brian Freer, playing both your names, right, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... We didn't know what to call ourselves in the free search. We called it Free Ray, and I said, no, Free Day. And then we wished he'd never met me, unfortunately. Um, no, it, it didn't really start at a call. It started just, let's do a play. Um, I went to his house in Muffin County, and I thought, said, we'll do a play, because I think I can get some money to do this play. And, um, okay, and, um, is that better? Yeah. yeah. And, um, and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm writing a play at the moment, and we could do that. And it, it, was, a, it was about, uh, it was called eventually translations, you know, he sent me it page by page almost. And then, of course, I realized it was a masterpiece, which was, a, which was the kind of, um, if it had been any other play, maybe it wouldn't, it, we wouldn't have gone into being a, a company of cultural intervention. You know, it was, it was so uh, powerful when it was first, uh, when it first appeared, and, and we decided to keep on growing. 
That's, that's really it. It wasn't a master plan. It's um, something that crude energy has, has got going. When, when you started, was there a sense that it was going to become something else? I mean, I think of the, you know, the program for that first production of translations. You know, it, it wasn't your usual program with, you know, Second Spirit Carrier Study Nebrada and an ad for aluminium windows. I mean, there's an essay in it by Richard Carney, which engages with Heidegger in language. Um, it, 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 was, it, it, it was quite a substantial program. I mean, was there that sense early on that there was something else? Well, of course. And, I mean, we decided as well to, to gather some people around us on our board that would be significant people, and not just, you know, uh, neutral kind of board members, you know, Dean and Edie and Hammond and uh, Paul. And, and um, of course, Dean was, you know, interested in pushing the content. And I do think one of our great achievements was uh, bringing Seamus away from the academy into something more public. I do, I do believe that, you know. And um, so we knew that we were going to do something, of course. And then what it was became obvious. <laughs> Maybe pass on Angela, we'll come back to you. Is that all right? Yeah. Because I know, Angela, you're interested in, 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 in the culture of Barry before, before translation, mm -hmm. before that sort of moment in the Yeah, I was in Derry quite a lot in the 1970s. A lot of my good friends from UCD were actually born and brought up in Derry. I stayed there a lot when there were soldiers on the streets and there were Saracen tanks and there were CS gas and rubber bullets, bullets, all that sort of thing. But the thing that I think has not ever been mentioned, is not that I know of, in the context of setting up field day, was that Derry was a city where very few Catholic men had jobs. But women had jobs. Derry, you know, is romanticized as kind of the feminine counterpart to industrial masculine Belfast. And there's a sense of Western mystique about Derry, and it's feminized in that sort of way. But Derry was not a country place. Nobody kept hens in Derry. You know, they were, they were not just in from the country. There were several generations of working class people in Derry who lived in the bog side of the Craigan mostly. And the women went out to work in the shirt factories. And the men went out to collect their brew, as you know, what we in Dublin we would call the dole. But when they went out, they didn't have a lot of money, and they were, they were responsible, loving men to their families and to their communities. But they gathered in groups on the streets of Derry. They weren't drinking so much, they were smoking a lot, and they were talking, and they were raising great hands, and they were, you know, taking interest in all kinds of things. It was a kind of an Athenian society for men, where there was there was an income to the house, there was a, a reasonably decent, you know, quite a decent way of living. The women worked extremely hard. They came home from the factory and then put on the pan and cooked for their families. But the men were the people who elaborated the discourse. They were the people who made the world happen through words and conversations. It was always my sense. And when I then became familiar with what Field Day was doing. I didn't encounter translations until much later. And it's, it's a masterpiece, of course. It's also fascinating in so many ways, because Derry's hinterland, of course, is Donegal. And the play is Donegal. The play has this conceit of using the Irish language. And yet, 
Um, there isn't a word of Irish in the play, except the place names. And again, it has happened to me a couple of times in the United States to be asked to be dialogue coach for productions of translations. And I found it quite fascinating that the cast and the crew had to get their heads around saying a name like Balan and all. And I had to devise ways of teaching them how to say Balanangal or Balanangal or Balanangal, I suppose, in Donegal. Um, but those place names and the resonance of them and the sound of them, and you know, I just I took a note of what Shamsini wrote in an open letter. This is after translations came out. He says, um, to, be at, to be at home in my own place um, and dwell within the proper name. You know, the proper name of the place, and that's what translations is about, and about the identity. And it seems to me that this idea of the local and the profoundly local, urban, hugely urban culture of Derry, but that, that honoured men, but gave them the space to talk. And if I could just say one more thing before I hand over somebody else, it seemed to me when I saw St. Oscar, when I saw it in the Guildhall in Derry, I, I can't remember how I came to see it in the Guildhall in Derry, but I did. And I remember Stephen at the bottom of a huge wooden stepladder, and I can't remember who played the judge, up on the top of this very tall wooden stepladder in full long judge's wake with a very long red robe. And the red robe, sumptuous red robe, went all the way to the ground. And it seemed to me that the homeliness of that, that the, the audiences in the Guildhall were audiences for their own accents and their own voices and the language of Derry and Donegal, and it's not exactly the same accent, the Donegal accent is not the Derry accent, but still there was a homeliness about that, and it seemed to me that the textile arts of Northern Ireland, and particularly the shirt making in Derry, and the, the work that women did, that was somehow evoked by that wonderful long robe of the judge in, um, in St. Oscar. But there you go. Okay, th thanks, thanks, thanks very much. I, mean, I, think, I think one thing you're capturing there is the sense of you know, why theatre? Uh, this, is, this is a culture of, of talking, of conversation, and word intervention really could be made through theatre. Um, I might just bring Claire in and then come back here because you, you, were, you, were, you were in and in the audience for Double Cross, is that right? No, 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 in fact, um, I, I, as you can hear from my accent, I'm not from Ireland. Um, and is this one better? Yeah. Um, so I came. Encountered Field Day very much from the outside. Um, I was doing my homework yesterday and I was watching the Arena documentary that is online. I don't know if many of you have had the chance to look at it, but one of the things that comes out in that documentary again and again uh, is uh, Stephen Ray, uh, Shane Steen, Shane Heaney, um, everybody talking about the importance of a local audience. Um, an audience on the ground. I think he uses the term in that um, um, program, holding on to the ground. And I, I was a student in the middle of England in the mid-80s, and I decided I needed to get to, I, I was interested in Irish poetry, so I um, thought I'd better go to Derry and find out what Field Day was about. And in those days, it took me 24 hours at least on the bus and the train and the boat and then another bus and another train. I finally arrived. Uh, it was January 1986 and it wasn't, it wasn't Double Cross. It was a poetry reading. Um, a kind of mix of um, poetry, song, um, all, all people just getting up. Um, the the Shameses, Tom Paulin, uh, Davy Hammond, 
And what I could not believe, and I still looking back, can't really believe it, was the audience. It was enormous. This huge, local, really engaged audience. I thought, Jesus Christ, I'm in the wrong country. I mean, again, not five people in the back of a classroom. This is arguably, I've sort of spent the last 35 years thinking about poetry because of that event, in fact, and, and that sense of audience. But the point I want to make is that audience was fantastic, but I think it was also kind of unnerving. And I'm thinking particularly about the poets. I'm thinking about Seamus Dean in particular and Seamus Heaney, who I think were warmed by that audience, but I think it was also could, could possibly, and they understood this, become an issue around for them, around the problem of spectacle. And I, I guess that Seamus Dean's input in trying to lead Field Day also to be thinking about the pamphlets and later on the anthology has to do with a kind of sense of the, um, the, the, the kind of problems that audience and spectacle rather than readers and listeners might bring. Let's pick that up in a minute. Let's, let's just let's keep with this, this moment of the local for, and then we can see where we go with that. Because I, I think one of the things that's interesting with Field Day is, is I mean, obviously, it, it starts out in Derry and it starts within that very specific context, and it is, it, there is that very powerful local audience. And yet, as early as 1983, the Apple Fugard played Bozeman and Nina. I mean, was there a sense as well that what Field Day could do, I suppose, part of the form of its intervention? could be to take a conversation that was very much a local conversation and put it in a wider frame, put it in, in, in an international sort of frame. Well, um, the Athol Fulgrant thing was, um, it was a bit more um, practical than that in a way, because um, we, it's very hard to do one play a year if you haven't um, we got a whole repertoire, you know, and so we, we started with translations. We did a, a, a translation by Free Love, Three Sisters, then we did Communication Court, and then I think we commissioned a play from David Rodkin, which um, Free and I had a rule that if, if both of us didn't want, unless both of us wanted to do it, we wouldn't do the play. Free in particular didn't want to do that play because uh, he thought it was anti-Protestant. And uh, he was more sensitive about that than, than I would have been. But, um, uh, so we had to find something else. And, and I knew Athol Fugard and I thought we should do that. And, and of course, the, um, when we could be pilloried for thinking there were parallels with South Africa, with the North Ireland. And, um, well, it was a great play. and. Um, Audiences loved it. You know, they, they thought it was amusing. <laughs> really, it was not a I, I suppose where, where, where I suppose want to go with that is just to pick up the first point is that the move then from theatre, from spectacle towards you know, doing things like the, the, the pamphlets. I mean, the first, first pamphlet series, what, 1983? Um, we have one that's uh, just looked at my notes here Seamus Dean, Civilians and Barbarians, Heaney's Open Letter, um, and then Tom 
Holland's new look at the language question. Mm -hmm. how, how did that conversation happen? It had, it had, how did you get from being a favorite company to doing that? Well, because we had a, these people who weren't actually weren't mad about theatre, you know, like, um, and well, particularly Seamus wasn't mad about theatre, but I do think he thinks it's, um, it's really hard as a form. <laughs> Which I don't mind, I kind of feel that too. But also it's like, no, no, you know, unless you get a fantastic play like um, Cypress Avenue, um, Farewell by Claire Dwyer, you know, which you feel compelled to do, you know, but um, just to do it as a repetitive kind of ritual is, is, is boring. But, you know, I think what Dean saw was, was an opportunity to to reach an audience, I have to reach them, and he, uh, he used I think the word pamphlet was used by Freed, but I think it was Dean that then drove it, and, and finally drove the anthology, uh, and drove it with incredible force and passion, really astounding, astounding, unique work. And that's, if I look back on Fielding, that's the thing I'm most proud of, is what Seamus achieved. You know, I often, you know, I don't know that Freel did anything. I don't mean that. <laughs> I don't mean that he did anything. But, you know, he did things that, 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 he was given a context that allowed him to say things. And that's the great thing about Fielding for him. But, uh, you know, when he needed plays and he did, he did Cure Troy, which was a big moment. And, but but then it was it, it took him into a different area, you know, I think it did. Okay. Yeah, just can pick that up. Yeah, we only have the one light here. Yeah, that that one work? Oh, okay, great. Right. Okay. Oh right, we're here. Technology is marvelous. Actually, just to pick that up, though, I mean, this idea, I, I like this idea that maybe theater is, you know, is, is, is an archaic form or has its day. Pamphlet is the pamphlet is is, is, is is not exactly cutting edge technology either. I mean, just, we think reform. I, mean, I think of the pamphlet, or you think of the 18th century rather than the late 20th. Um, it, 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 was there a kind of conscious anachronism almost in in in, in issue of pamphlets? I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was a funny thing to do. Probably you're right, it's an anachronism, but uh, sorry. No, 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 just I wasn't keen on the next one. No, we just thought of something that could, in a vulgar way, be found on bookshop and, and bookshops and things, you know, where people, you'd think, and ideas would take hold, or, you know, antagonism towards an idea would take hold, or whatever, you know, certainly we did meet a lot of that. Thank you, Angela. I think that maybe the, the idea of the pamphlet, again, I wasn't there, but it seems to me that it is a bit archaizing, but what it's doing is invoking a face-to-face -face culture and a talking culture where, you know, people will say, have you read this? And they can have it in their pocket, they can pass it on. It's designed to be ephemeral. I mean, of course, these have become now collector's items, but but the, it was really honouring this face-to-face -face culture, which was something that was delighted by the actions of the state. You know, and particularly as border roads were, you know, cratered and um, blocked and bridges were removed. And 
these boundaries that had always been there, but they had been to some extent fluid. Then, 1922-23, they become legal entities, but still not what they became in the 70s. And the resistance to that very authoritarian, very final, almost death-like imposition of a boundary that has no flexibility, because usually around boundaries there are grey areas. And I think that the Field Day project in general was an invoking of the community, the accent, the way we pronounce our place names. Shemsini had a famous story about being on the phone, trying to make a call home to Northern Ireland, and he said, Koch, and she said, oh, you mean Koa? And he almost said yes to the operator, and then he said, no, I mean Koch, because Koch was the name of the place. But, but that, that, had, it, that was reiterated daily during Troubles and before. And so I think the pamphlet was a conscious way of bridging between the oral and the literary, in fact, the, the, you know, the considered sentences of writing and yet intended to be talked about. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. It goes back to our, 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 our earlier discussion around the, the local, the feeling, the very local nature of the, of the intervention. Um, and I think when you look at the early pamphlets, say, you know, Indy's open letter, Holland's new, new look at the language question, they are very much engaged with that, how do we speak to one another here? But then when you go to the, the, the later pamphlet series, you might get Connor maybe to pick this up, um, this, the pamphlets that came out in, in 1988, we had three pamphlets. We had Seamus Dean's um, Making History, Nationalism, Colonialism, Literature, but then we have Frederick Jameson. You know, modernism and imperialism, and, and the Said pamphlet, the Edward Said pamphlet on Yeats and decolonization. And again, it's perhaps you know a, a bit like the Bosmanalina moment, although that was also a practical aspect there. That what is very local suddenly is put in a context that is much wider. That there's a there's a wider comparative context there. Do you want to pick that up, Connor? Yeah. Am, am I available? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. There has already um, talked or confessed about her first moment in Field Day. And my first moment of encounter in Field Day was in 1988, when the last pamphlets, the last trio of pamphlets that Chris has just referred to were published. I was a student here in Trinity. And um, the pamphlets were given a full page, double review in the weekend Irish Times. They were reviewed by Declan Hybert, who was sympathetic, and they were reviewed by Edna Longley, who was unsympathetic. <laughs> um, but the point is that these reviews um, and the pamphlets, for me anyway, as, as, a, as a finishing undergraduate student, made me aware that there could be something very serious at stake in criticism and in intellectual performance in public. So when I think of the pamphlets, Angela's mentioned the idea of Derry being a kind of an Athenian society. I think of the pamphlets, I think of the 18th century public sphere, of Habermas's public sphere. The pamphlets look for a public sphere, but they also have to create one at the same time. And of course, theatre, and I say this in the presence of maybe our greatest living actor, um, theatre is, is not one of the most you know, public literary forms or activities or practices, so it makes, it's striving to make a public. But with the, with the last trio of pamphlets by Jameson, Said, and, and, and Terry Eagleton, uh, there was a kind of, as Chris is saying, a kind of internationalizing of the Field Day project. But I'd suggest, in fact, that that was at least implicit in translations, let's say, right at the very beginning. Because what, what I think of when I think of translations 
is I think of it as being a play that's it's about across many things, but it's also about the production of knowledge, its relation to power, and a colonial context. Translations was written and performed for the first time just two years after Edward Said published Orientalism. I'm not trying to bring everything back to Edward Said because I know a bit about him, but I do think that the that conjuncture of dates is, is, is not any significant. Same problematic as that Said treats in a scholarly manner in, in, in Orientalism is treated in a dramatic manner if you want in, in, uh, in translation. So I think that the idea that Seamus Dean would eventually turn to um, colleagues and comrades in the international sphere of, of criticism, of left criticism, um, I think that was always going to come, or I think it was uh, kind of, that was, it was likely to come. I realize again that as Stephen was saying, there wasn't always you know, a preset plan. Um, and I suppose the wider thing that I want to sort of say from that, and maybe people will think this is just a bit too much, but um, uh, there's a wonderful uh, South Asian uh, historian, a Balkan historian, uh, working in Chicago, I think, still, Dukesh Chakrabarti. And Chakrabarti published maybe 20 years ago a book entitled Provincializing Europe. And I think that uh, what Chakrabarti is trying to do in that book and in previous writings, he's trying to, he's trying to offer a kind of post-colonial critique of Eurocentric historiography, to put it very crudely. And I think that in affiliating, say, Field Day and the pamphlet specifically to writers like Edward Said and Frederick Jameson, Seamus was probably, again, I'm putting words a little bit into his mouth, I'm guessing, but he was affiliating Field Day project to that kind of uh, provincialization of the metropolis. And that would be, I suppose, what I want to do. Do you want to pick that up, Claire? I suppose, maybe just as somebody who's watching Field Day, you know, there in 86, the, the pamphlets come out in 88, this, the second set of pamphlets. I mean, what was your, your sense at the time of what was happening? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I was very aware of the final set of pamphlets. I was um, very aware in particular of objections to the Said pamphlet um, from uh, Yeats scholars and Yeats biographers, well-known Yeats biographers, uh, <laughs> and, and the kind of debate around the difference between a kind of historical take on Irish culture and a theoretical take on Irish culture seemed to be the crux of where where that that argument was going. What I what I think is fascinating, really, is that compared to the pamphlets, the anthology looked as young people um, in the 1980s as an incredibly boring project. I mean, you know, what was he doing, Shane's theme, getting everybody to waste all their time, to gathering, to, I mean, nobody could understand it from my side of the water anyway. Um, and Tom Pullen came to talk to us about it, and I, I remember us all saying, what are you thinking of? This is just an anthology? An anthology of the 19th century? Don't do this. Um, and how wrong we were. Because in fact, the anthology, as, as Seamus Dean argued, was a place um, to present all the different kinds of competing ideologies. Um, 
he wanted to, he thought of it. Well, I wish he was here, but anyway, he could have told us. But I think he, he, he was thinking of it as a way of kind of remaking a sense of, of an Irish history through examining anthologies, not via James and <coughs> but via kind of tech, uh, autochthonous texts. And um, that was, in the end, where the greatest controversy came out. Um, partly, I think, because it is so hard, and Andrew and I know this from having been involved in the second uh, draft of the anthology, as it were, so hard to historicize your own present. So hard to see where the, where the debates are that you should be catching up with. Um, I'll, I'll come back to that, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, okay. perhaps we could we can pick up the anthology that we really did. And Steve, you're saying, you know, you think that the clue where Seamus Dean did is really, really kind of lots with the lasting legacy of, of the field there, or you view one of the lasting legacies. And the anthology certainly was um, the, the piece that you know, did generate a lot of controversy. I'll tell my little um, the anthology anecdote. Um, Terence Brown and I were driving up to Belfast Festival to do a, a debate on, um, on, on Radio Ulster about the Field Day Anthology. We were pulling the parking lot in Queens, and this very suspicious security man looked in the window, and Terence says, oh, We want to park. And the security man looks in at us and says, Are you artists? <laughs> Something it was debated on the radio, and it was debated like, and it was and it did create but it, a debate. That sense of a kind of sedimented history and of being able to look at the history of culture differently by incorporating so many diverse elements, so many diverse voices, and we we, we get to the diversity that wasn't there at the moment. But how did that map on to what had gone on earlier in Field Day? Well. such a strong instrument of colonization. 
that they were, they were, you know, a way of packaging what was believed to be important in the culture, and then handing it back to the unwashed and the barefoot and the, the speakers of other languages and other dialects and saying, this is what you must aspire to, this is what's worthwhile, and what you have at home should be quietly thrown on the back. Um, also, I think that the, the, you know, Seamus was thinking of, his, of anthologies in history and thinking about precisely the 19th century anthologies and how they still had a presence in the late 20th century. Um, so that a lot of what came out at the time and it was, I mean, it was a, a heavy time really in terms of the kind of battles that were fought about what was included, what wasn't included, what the tone was, uh, what the paper quality was like, all of those things. Um, but I don't think an anthology of that binding, that importance in a slipcover box, it cannot be gauged actually at the time of publication. It, those came out in, I think, 1992, didn't they? Um, and, uh, you know, as Claire says, people are still teaching from them, and some of the people who, who, who were against them. So, you know, and Claire also, in talking there, she said the anthology was to be a place where all of these opposing voices could come together. But I think that quite literally, a big, important, bound book like this, even in the age of the internet, is a place. I think it has the presence of a place. You go to the anthology, you sure as hell don't carry it around in your bag, and you don't read it in bed, you know, you, you, you go to where it is, and usually for most readers, it's in a library. But it represents a place, and it has that mnemonic quality that uh, you know, digitization will never have, because what you can call up on your phone is quite different to what you have to go to see. I, I, it seems like we're, we're encountering here something, you know, what Marshall McLuhan once called the rearview mirror effect, that you don't see a technology until you've gone past it. Um, and, and in a sense, that the anthology, it would be hard to imagine doing an anthology today, where, uh, because the anthology, is, I suppose, is not suited to, 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 to certain kinds, certain forms. It's very hard to anthologize novels, for instance, or even full-length plays. It's better suited to shorter works. Um, so, but today, the digitization, the anthology is really the archive. Um, and, and I suppose similarly, you could say the pamphlet really is, is something you wouldn't really imagine doing pamphlets today when you could do a blog or you could do other forms like that. So we can sometimes see the pamphlet and we can see the anthology more clearly at the moment than we could 20 years ago. Do you want, do you want to pick up, Claire, where the, the, the significance of, of the sort of debate around those, those anthology, the anthology, and particularly, I suppose, you know, that debate that led to the the fourth of its volumes. Yes, I may have repressed that debate. It, um, one of the things that Seamus Dean, I think, did so brilliantly, and there are editors of the anthology in the audience, Gibbons up there, and he did the cultural critique uh, section, which was so important, I think, in bringing together different kinds of, of, of discourse, you know, literary, political, social, economic languages. We're all supposed to be abutting one another in, in, in the, uh, within the covers of, of the anthology. Um, I, I think the difficulty was partly that it takes a long time to gather these texts together. So even in the ARENA program that you, you might may have watched, I think it's 1988, and they say, oh, it's going to publish next year. Well, it was several years after that that it eventually came out. 
And Andrew and I know that when we worked on volumes four and five, it took us 11 years. Um, these, so time, time is always kind of catching up with you as, as you are trying to get ahead of it. Um, so why 1991 when the anthology, the, the first three volumes were published? Ireland had, and I'm talking really about the Republic, I suppose, um, had gone through kind of seismic distress around women's issues. Um, there'd been the abortion referendum, there'd been the death of Anne Lovett, the Carrie, Carrie Baby's case. Um, there's um, a huge, huge kind of weighty, disturbing presences on, on, in, in, happening in everyday life, which the anthology had not been able to record. It has not recorded it, I think, partly because there were blind spots in some of the editors. I don't want to deny that was the case. But it was also a kind of problem of historicization. How do you keep in? How do you keep on top of all of that? Um, do you keep? This, I suppose, is actually a problem of um, um, if, if it was a digital um, anthology, then you could have kept on top of it. You, you literally just plug in reality, and reality gets recorded. But it wasn't that. It was. It was supposed to be a place where you could weigh up ideologies one against another, and, and therefore the, the things that were missing in inverted commas, seemed glaring. I mean, they seemed horribly, horribly glaring. But from my own point of view, I was editing then, um, and I think, how brave of Seamus to ask this English woman to edit the, the contemporary writing section. I mean, I, I, I'm full of admiration for all that, that he did, in fact. Um, couldn't be more full of that admiration. Um, I was editing the contemporary section and I came across exactly the same problem. Um, as time passed, I realized there were things that I was not grasping. I, I, in fact, the, the, the final year's delay gifted me something in that I had very much missed. I had simply not got my eyes open to the impact of inward migration and a growing kind of racism, in, particularly in the Republic. And right at the very end, I read a piece by a Nigerian woman that was published in, in Dublin, uh, that was about going shopping in Arnott's. And I thought, oh my god, I have completely missed race and migration and everything else, and I shoved it in. But it was, it was kind of, you know, through desperate lucky chance, really. And the other thing I'd say about, about the difficulty of historicizing your own present, really, is I, I did a section on um, feminism and cultural critique. There, there, there was a section on sexuality where I was trying to um, think about things like the Anne Lovett case and, and the Kerry Babies case, but also a, a, an attempt to think through feminist criticism of cultural uh, feminist cultural interventions, I suppose. And I look at it now, and I just think it's really bad. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I was stuck with a kind of Mother Arlen discourse. Bloody hell. I mean, you know, so, so I begin that section with um, a, a, um, a piece by Edna O'Brien taken from her book, Mother Ireland. And I look back 
and I think, I should not have done that. I should have gone to something like um, A Pagan Place, her novel, which is about a woman who um, gets pregnant and has to, is, is, is sent to a mother and baby home. Her sister is raped by a priest. And she becomes a nun. That, that novel was published in 1970, and it, was, it spoke so much more clearly to the kinds of awareness that we slowly gained, or have, have more quickly gained, uh, since the year 2000. Um, so much more clearly to the culture of, of containment around women, but I couldn't see it. And so I think, I, I suppose, I, I think it is impossible for an anthology not to be blind. It is interesting for the ways in which it is blind, and it can't be blind. In some ways, the anthology kind of marks a turning point, really, I feel like, doesn't it? I mean, it's the year that um, the Brian Field resigned, isn't it, from, from the Abbey Board, or from the, the, the Field Day Board, it was 91. Um, and the, the Field Day kind of almost goes in, it starts to follow kind of two parallel tracks. Do you continue doing productions, or is that? That, that, that manic from Bulbania in what, 93 or 94? Um, manic? Manic? It was manic. <laughs> usually Uncle Bulbania is sort of sedate. I, I still remember that production. It was, it was, it was uh, Frank McGinnis' translation. Yeah, yeah it was a fabulous production. I thought it was more of a version. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Frank was yeah. a little more manic than you can It was great, and the language wasn't in manic, yeah. so for yeah. sure. Um, no, I just, I kind of was kind of, you know, did, there was a question of things fell uh, asunder a little with, um, with, with Brian finally leaving, but, um, uh, you know, I just defiantly kept doing a couple of things, you know, and, and, and Seamus Dean kept doing, um, you know, Food Day Review. Magnificent, and, uh, and we, we kept it going whilst we could, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, you know, the initial momentum was huge because it didn't, people pushed us along. You know, people wanted it so much. You know, and, uh, but it, it took a lot of energy out of me to keep doing things. You know, and I wanted to have some of my career as well. You said lots. No, no, no. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah. yeah, but but we are we are again at, at a point of you know I want to do this thing next year. I mean, 40th anniversary, believe it or not. But um, want to, but it isn't like it won't be the beginning of something. It may just be a big thing to do it. So, yeah. I but I suppose while while you were you know keeping the theatrical side of it going, there. Things went in sort of different directions as well with the critical conditions um, volumes that began to come out. I mean, the first ones, I think, you know, it was Luke Gibbons' volume was in this range, and Kevin Wheeler, and, um, and then those two, those two great books by Yael Dearson that came out in 1996. And, and, and at that point, I think Field Day really becomes identified with very much a very particular kind of critical movement in Irish studies and Irish culture, cutting across literature, history, cultural studies. Do you want to pick that up, Connor? Exactly. Um, I don't know if they have to say about that, but I think that things like, uh, like the, the, those two book series are incredibly important. I mean, they are you know, a major spine of Irish criticism for the last 20 years. 
um, and things like um, reissuing, well, reissuing Pearson's original gigantic mega book from 1986, Mere <coughs> Irish and and, and then the second book, whose title I can't remember offhand. Uh, and these were in, in relatively, relatively cheap paperback editions. They're the kinds of books that a student might actually aspire to, to, to purchase, or that a scholar would purchase. They weren't just you know, hardbacks for a library. And I would still see that kind of activity along with Field Day Review, which as Stephen says is an extraordinary and magnificent production. Um, as those, those acts, you know, the, the Seamus' editing um, uh, with Rondon Machina of the Field Day Review and the editing of the series of books, those two are interventions in a kind of public sphere, I think. Um, and as you say, um, uh, Field Day, and it's worth, you know, it's, we're in a university here, and um, I work in a university, and Claire and Angela and Chris work in universities. Um, you know, one of the most important and interesting things about Field Day was, of course, it was not a university-based organization at all. It, it, you know, it's, it was staffed in part by people who came from universities, but who were, in the way of intellectuals, if I can use that word, who were stepping beyond their professional expertise to do something else for a public, not necessarily in any particular and I think that effort that, again, Seamus Dean in particular put into producing those book series and producing that magnificent review, that's something that needs to be remembered and, and admired. And yes, I think that Field Day, Field Day may be sponsored or helped to create the atmosphere where, uh, as I said earlier, an Irish post-colonial criticism, whether it's that of Declan Kyber or David Lloyd or Joe Keery, um, could um, form itself and, and, and become almost a kind of now a kind of critical orthodoxy. Um, back in the 1980s and 1990s, that wasn't yet the case. Um, I think that's, that's a signal achievement. And the, the bottom line for me is that few day, and it's beginning, when you talk about the, the, the anachronism, arguably, maybe productive anachronism of the anthologies or of the, the pamphlets. Um, Another anachronism is the fact that, yes, Field Day was a group of intellectuals. I keep on using the word. Seamus wrote an essay in the mid-1970s, which I dug up in the early printed books just here in Trinity just a few days ago, entitled, I think, An Irish Intelligentsia, Reflections on its Desirability. <laughs> we, still, we still need one, but Field Day was an active attempt to make, to promote a critical intelligentsia, not just a group of atomized, you know, university located or journalistically located intellectuals, but a group with a political purpose. And um, so Seamus was thinking about these things back in 1975, I think. And I suspect, again, at the risk of putting words or thoughts, not words into his mouth, but thoughts into his head, um, you know, Field Day was an opening in which he could, he could uh, develop that project. You know. And I think, this is one last thing, is that the thing that actually strikes me now is how hard it is to imagine a group of contemporary Irish writers, if I may, you know, some of you may be in the audience, of course, but it's too late now, I start saying. <laughs> um, a group of contemporary Irish writers coming together in a similar spirit for a similar approximate project. A public-minded, civic-minded, cultural, political project. Maybe, maybe there's all sorts of things happening out there that I can't see. It's very likely, right? Um, but I don't think so. I'll be, I'll be glad to be corrected. Angela, do you want to pick that up? A few little things. I, I completely agree about the intervention, about the creation and maintaining of the public sphere. I think this is a lasting legacy. 
of Field Day because the whole thrust of Field Day's enterprise has been to make that public sphere and, and kind of illuminate it. And that is something we need so urgently as neoliberal, the neoliberal project kind of just sweeps away everything that doesn't serve either entrepreneurs or, or consumers. Um, so it's, it's a non-commercial public space. And it's also a secular public space, which I think in the Ireland of its foundation was a hugely important thing. Um, but um, I was struck by um, uh, Connor's talking about the Irish intelligentsia when Edna Longley wrote a diary piece for the LRB when the first uh, three volumes came out, she started it with uh, a little vignette about a, a book that has kind of passed out of notice that it was Nina, uh, Nina Fitzpatrick, Fables of the Irish Intelligentsia. Um, and Nina Fitzpatrick was in fact the late Pat Sheeran of Galway and Nina Vitaschek. Um, Edna said in that uh, piece that the reason this book had not been awarded the Irish Times Literature Prize was that the author was found to be insufficiently Irish, being Polish. But in fact, I, I happen to know that at the time, the reason was not that one of the authors was Polish, but that the author was two people. And the Irish Times Prize was for a book by a single author. But Edna decried the Field Day anthology, the first three volumes, with her usual absolutely razor-sharp rigour, but she decried it as a project of this inward-looking, and I think she thought Dublin-based, as far as its imagination went, Irish intelligentsia, kind of a joke term. Um, just to say that, uh, but, but, but in fact it was it was much more than a Dublin thing, and I did have something else to say, but it's gone out of my mind, so... Um, I, I think, I mean, that, that sense of the urgency of the project, and the urgency of having an Irish intelligentsia, if you like, to speak out, um, was, was that very much a product of the time? I mean, it's worth, it's worth remembering. I mean, when this was in translations, it was in rehearsals, the, 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 the hunger strike started. I don't think that's, that, that, that timing lines up. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean you know, it, 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 it was, it, it was a different time. It was a, it, there, there was a civil war, as the title of our. It's what it's tasteless for a southern liberal like myself to say this, but it's, you know, there's no doubt that the, the conflict in the north gave a kind of urgency to historiographic and literary critical debates and uh, gave them a kind of edge. And Fielde was intervening in that, but Fielde was also very consciously trying to formulate on the I don't know if I have these terms right, but on, on the terrain of culture, a specifically political intervention. That's an extraordinarily daring thing to do. And I don't think anything could be done in this country akin to that since the foundation maybe of the Abbey Theatre. For a while it seemed to me that Field Day was the Abbey Theatre, or was the National Theatre. In fact, this current debate on the page of the Irish Times about the nature of the National Theatre. I thought, I thought Field Day was the Abbey Theatre. Uh, really, you know, because it had an intention and... That was the Abbey Theatre as it should be. Yeah, and it was a, a national theatre before there was a nation, you know, uh, it insisted on that, you know. And, um, but uh, part of the importance of, of the plays and everything was that one event occurred when we were doing our second year, which was Three Sisters, um, on the opening night in Guildhall, British Army helicopters flew over the Guildhall and drowned out the sound of the play. And um, I thought, well, it must be important. <laughs> <laughs> and well, that, that happened. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah, I mean, uh, and 
And, and we, we had a sense of self-importance, you know, in the best kind of way. And, and we thought that, you know, we'd all in some way or other experienced what it was to live in, let's be clear, one, a one-party police state for, for 50 years, that's what happened. And, and, and the collapse into pure violence was a collapse of that, that state. And, um, you know, and got, you know, there were the horror strikes and everything, and, you know. And then Freel said to me, you know, it's all about language. And I, I said, what? Translations? The play? The he said, everything. And, and so we were, you know, I mean, I worked in theatres in England, and, uh, you know, nobody ever talked like that, <laughs> you know. Uh, so we were, you know, and we've quite rightly um, talked about Seamus, but it was also free, you know, it was a different approach. And it was because we were trying to make some kind of inroads into the society that we'd grown up in. And it was huge, I was, it was very unsettling the way people in the South hated that. They hated the fact that the energy had gone to the Northwest, Belfast hated it as well. They, they, you know, they just they couldn't bear it. But because what we were producing was a genuine energy, I mean, a real intellectual energy. And, um, you know, the achievement of those few years, whether it be publications or in, uh, in theatre, was was immense. Can I go back to the idea of the secular and absolutely I agree with what Stephen just said. Um, it seems to me that at the time Field Day started, for the nationalist community anyway, the only people entitled to speak with authority were the church, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church led the society. And what the Field Day did was to establish a discourse that was non-sectarian and a public sphere that wasn't a church and it wasn't religiously inflected. And I think about the, Connor was talking earlier about the Field Day Review. And for 10 years, that was produced in the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, which is a Catholic foundation founded by French priests along these rivers that people rode up when they traveled across the Great Lakes. And it was founded by French priests, but within about 15 years, its presidents and its professors were Irish Catholic in, 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 in their background. And it's still a very um, evangelizing Catholic institution, uh, an extremely conservative Catholic institution, but it gave tremendous hospitality to Irish studies and to Seamus Dean's professorship, um, and that's how Field Day Review, with its big international dimension, building on the last three pamphlets, that kind of took shape in that way. But I think what, they did, what, what Seamus and others did at Notre Dame and with Field Day Review was hugely important in moving Irish studies away from an Irish Catholic agenda of, of past wrongs and of a certain kind of lockstep uh, adherence to orthodoxies. They managed quite subtly, while keeping support of that very conservative university, they managed to absolutely angle what they were doing away from that sectarian and rather benighted to my view, anyway, uh, I'll look. Can I just add to that that, again, as early as 1975, Seamus 
is considering in that essay the problematic of the location of the intellectual. How does she, um, what kind of compromises does she have to negotiate with the institutions or the economic forces that surround her and hedge her in? And, uh, you know, sometimes I like to think that real intellectuals are those that bite the hands that feed them. But of course, if the intellectual really bites the hand that feeds them, he, he, he gets shut up very fast. So there has to be a kind of negotiation. And that's what Angela, I think, is referring to, that kind of negotiation. I, I'm keeping an eye on our time here, so I might just, as, as a kind of wrap-up, I might just try to, to, to see them just for uh, just a final thing. You, you mentioned coming up the 40th anniversary, and <coughs> how, how do we mark that? How do we, how, how do we address that? How, how do you see that happening? Oh, well, um, I mean, I thought of this at the body when I'm trying to get organized that, um, next year because uh, I'm not I mean that we're doing all right now. I just uh, I don't want it to be nostalgic about what we've achieved. Just the world is a mess as we know and I would, um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to do something with people from writers who are trying uh, at least with writers who are trying to uh, approach situations that they find themselves in you know and Marine Kerr later Palestinians, uh, black American writers, the way things have turned around for black people, you know, to um, just, uh, you know, have a lot of um, people from that other world that, uh, that, that, you know, we're doing okay, you know, we, and we just like to invite them in and, uh, and see what's happening with them. That's, you know, that's about as far as I'm. I mean, I may have other things. Do I No. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was talking. I was talking to um, a black actor in London recently, and we, uh, we, one of the things we want to do is something about James Baldwin, you know, because uh, extraordinary, brilliant, and, and maybe he learns something. We talk and see what you know. How we can see how other people remain unequal. You know, and there's of course that part of our society which is disgusting, which is uh, direct provision, uh, the way we treat immigrants. It's why do we have to act out the habits of imperial countries? I don't, you know, because we clearly were not an imperial country. You know, that. You know, and, if I can just deign to do a few things, that'd be good too. It's something like that. Because, you know, it's, it'd be better than that. Thank you. Thanks very much.